Church family, open up in your Bibles to chapter 37 of Genesis. It's our text for today, chapter 37. We're going to begin in verse 2. We'll go through the end of the chapter. Um, And the title of our message today is, When Dreams Seem Shattered. When Dreams Seem Shattered. Chapter 37, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read. You follow along in God's Word. This is the Word of God. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where, are they, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Then when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. 
And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. How many of you like putting puzzles together? Anyone? Anyone like that? I see some hands. If I'm in the right mood, I kind of like it. Otherwise, I don't have the patience for it. Puzzles are interesting things. To someone just passing through the room, puzzles look like a big mess. It looks like a picture that has been broken into a thousand pieces. But to the one putting the puzzle together, it looks like a thousand pieces that are on their way to becoming a beautiful picture. Church, our lives are kind of like that. Our lives are kind of like a puzzle. And we can view the puzzle of our lives in one of two ways. Either we can look at the pieces and think, this could have been a beautiful picture, but all it is is a big mess. Or we can think this way, this mess of pieces is on its way to becoming a beautiful picture. And the perspective we choose depends on whether or not we see God as the one standing over the pieces of our lives and whether or not we then trust that God is able to accomplish His plan in the midst of the shattered pieces of our lives. Church Genesis chapter 37 verse 2 through 36 teaches us this, that when everything seems to be falling apart, God's steady hand of providence is accomplishing his plan. When everything in life may seem to be falling apart, God's steady hand of providence is accomplishing his plan. Genesis chapter 37 verse 2 begins a new section of Genesis. And and really this is the final section in the book of Genesis. You'll notice that familiar phrase there in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. I say familiar because this is now the 11th time that we have seen that phrase. These are the generations of as we've studied through the book of Genesis. And every time it marks a new section. Here it says these are the generations of Jacob. Now you may be thinking, well, I thought we've been learning about Jacob for a while. How is this going to be a section about Jacob? It's not. That's just the title. Let me remind you of the pattern that we see in Genesis. The pattern is that the generations that come from the person named in the title of the section is who the focus is on. So for instance, the section that was all about Jacob was titled, These Are the Generations of Isaac. That was Jacob's father. The section that was entitled, These Are the Generations of Esau, that's Jacob's brother, weren't really about Esau, they were about Esau's descendants. So now we get to this final section in Genesis entitled, These Are the Generations of Jacob, but the focus, even though Jacob does appear multiple times in this, the focus really isn't him, but the focus is on his sons, his 12 sons. So we get to this last section in the book, and you say, well, now who's going to be the main character? Well, church, in all of the Bible, the main character is God. 
Okay, that's the main one. But we do see that one of the sons kind of steps into the spotlight in, this, in this final, these final chapters of Genesis, and that's the son named Joseph. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that we're going to get some hints along the way that in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of the Bible, Joseph is actually going to end up taking a back seat, and there's another brother who's going to take the spotlight. And we'll get some hints of that in these final chapters of Genesis. But for now, the spotlight definitely is on the son of Jacob named Joseph. Now, remember the storyline of Genesis. God created a perfect world. Humans messed it up. God made some really awesome promises. Promises sent a deliverer, a man born of woman. He gave that promise to specifically to Abraham and said, that deliverer is going to come from your descendants. And he passed that to Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And then we've also seen that God was specific and he said, you know what, I'm going to also give this people that come from you a land and it's going to be the land of Canaan. But then God got even more specific and he said, your people are actually going to live in another land for 400 years before they come back to this land of promise. Not only that, but God had promised to uh, multiply this family and make them into a great nation. And not only that, but God had promised to bless all the nations through this family. And all of that background is necessary to understand what is happening in this final section of Genesis that runs from chapter 37 all the way to the end of the book. We're going to be asking these questions, which son of Jacob will either be the promised son or will be the next in line leading to the promised son? Where is this family going to end up for that 400 years of sojourning? Will they get out of there and come back to the land of promise? Will they become a great nation? Will they be blessing all the nations of the earth through them? Will God be bringing that blessing through them? We see all of those questions being answered, or at least we get more clues as to the answer uh, to those questions in this final section of Genesis. Now, from a big picture perspective, we see God's sovereign hand at work in many amazing ways in these chapters. But church, we also see incredible brokenness and sinfulness and pain and heartbreak along the way. And church, we want to learn from the people that we encounter in these chapters. We want to learn from the good examples, which we really don't see much of in our passage today, but there will be some good examples to come. But we also want to learn from the bad examples of the people in God's Word. But we don't just want to learn from their examples. At the same time, we want to see and we want to celebrate God's mighty hand of providence through it all. And chapter 37 draws us right into the continued mess of Jacob's family. And as we see the mess of pieces that this family has turned into, I want to share with you three truths this morning that I pray will both protect us from the shattered mess that sin causes in our lives as we say no to sin and we flee from temptation. And I'll also pray that these truths and our time in this passage will give us hope in God's plan, even when our lives seem to be falling apart. Let's jump right in. Truth number one, church, is this. This isn't complicated, okay? But it's important. Beware of, we're going to list three sins here. Beware of favoritism, hatred, and jealousy. Beware of favoritism, hatred, and jealousy. These are the three sins that get put on display here in chapter 37. 
Chapter 37 is full of bad examples, and we want to learn from them. Joseph is 17, the text tells us at this point in this story. And remember, Jacob, his father, has 12 sons by four different women. Two of the women were his wives. Two of them were his concubines that are sometimes referred to as his wives. They were the servants of his wives, actually. Jacob loved Joseph's mother, Rachel, more than his other wife, Leah, who was Rachel's sister. You remember that whole saga, right, that we've uh, walked through um, in previous chapters. Now, at this this point, Rachel has died, so Joseph's mother has died. But the rivalry between the sisters apparently got passed down to their sons. And so there's bad blood between these sons. Verse 2 tells us that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. Now Joseph is next to the youngest at this point, and so this is kind of like having your little brother tattletale on you. Nobody likes that. Okay, nobody likes that. We don't know if the bad report Joseph brought was true or not true. We are actually not told whether it was, a, it was an accurate report or a, not, not an accurate report. But either way, the brothers didn't like it. Whether it was true or not, they're not happy that their little brother is bringing in these bad reports to their father about their conduct. And unfortunately, Jacob doesn't help the situation. He fuels the fire of this bad blood between Joseph and his older brothers. Look at verse 3. It says, now Israel, remember that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So when you see Jacob and when you see Israel, that's the same person, okay? Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That's not good. And, And it gets worse. Jacob didn't hide the fact that he loved Joseph more than his other sons. He actually put it out there on display for everyone to see. What does the text tell us? It says that he made him, Jacob made Joseph a a coat, a robe of many colors. We don't know exactly what this robe looked like, but it it was flashy enough and stood out from whatever all the other brothers had in their closets enough that the brothers hated him for it. We have a younger brother who rats out his older brother and is given a fancy coat by his father to wear, which would have been a constant reminder to his brothers that he was their father's favorite. And this sin of favoritism fueled the sin of hatred in these brothers. Look at verse 4. It says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. But then it just gets worse for Joseph, at least from the perspective of the bad blood, because he starts having these dreams. And he starts telling his brothers what these dreams are. And, and, and the obvious meaning of both of the dreams that we see here is that his family is one day going to bow down to him. Whew. I mean, it, this is not looking good for Joseph and how his brothers are going to treat him, right? He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a tattletale, and, and he's flashing around a, a fancy coat that only his father gave to him, and, and then he's saying, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm having these dreams that one day you're going to bow down to me. Verse 5 and 8 both say that his brothers hated him even more because of these dreams. And then verse 11 says they were jealous of him. And the rest of the chapter tells us, that what, tells us about what came as a result of this favoritism, hatred, and jealousy. So Jacob sends Joseph about 50 miles away to where the rest of the brothers are supposed to be pasturing their flocks. He doesn't find them, but he's told, hey, they've moved a little bit further north. And, and so he goes a little bit further from home, heads off in their direction. When they see him coming, look at verse 18, they conspired to kill him. They conspired against him not to kind of toss him around, not to steal his coat and hide it somewhere, but to murder him. Okay, so that's the plan. Well, 
Reuben jumps in and he decides he's going to rescue Joseph from immediate death by talking the brothers into just throwing him into a pit. And then in the back of Reuben's mind, he thinks, and then I'll come back later and I'll get him out and and nothing will happen to Joseph. Well, they agree with him, but then Reuben apparently leaves for a little while. We don't don't know where he went, but he left for a little while, just long enough for Judah to come up with a better idea. They sit down to eat, looks up, sees some Ishmaelite traders. By the way, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, same group of people, so that word is used interchangeably here. He sees them, says, you know what? We're not going to make any money if we just kill him. What profit will it be to us? We could sell him. Then we can say, well, his blood isn't on our hands, and uh, we won't be guilty of murder, and we'll make some money in the process. And so all the brothers, except for Reuben, go along with that. They sell him to the Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. So now Joseph is in slavery. Reuben is not happy when he returns and finds out, what, y'all, y'all sold him, and now he's gone. You say, well, what, what all of a sudden made Reuben care about Joseph? It could be that he, Reuben is the oldest, and so when they get home, He's going to be held accountable for his little brother because he's the firstborn. He's the oldest, so he should be the one that's responsible. We don't really know if it was motivated by as much compassion as just not wanting to be held responsible as the older brother. But either way, Joseph is gone. So now the brothers decide they're going to deceive their father by dipping Joseph's robe in goat's blood and making it look like he was killed by an animal. Now think about this. This is where we got to keep reading Genesis in its context. Ironically, that is exactly what Jacob did to his father, is it not? He used his brother's clothes and the skins of a goat, not the blood of a goat, but the skins of a goat, to deceive his father Isaac. You remember that? The Bible does say you reap what you sow. Now all of this leaves Jacob extremely heartbroken, refusing to be comforted and saying he will mourn until he dies. When you see that word Sheol, until I go to Sheol, that's the grave. So until I go to the grave, I'm going to be mourning, Jacob says. And it leaves Joseph heading off to a life of slavery in Egypt. I think it's safe to say that this family is in pieces at this point. This family is in pieces. But notice what got them here. Favoritism, hatred, and jealousy. Church, we need to learn we take an opportunity in this passage to learn from these bad examples. We must be aware of, beware of these sins. Favoritism is never a good thing. James even wrote in his letter to the Christians a specific section in that letter warning the church against the sin of favoritism. You can go and read about that in James chapter 2. And this favoritism of Jacob helped provoke hatred in the hearts of the brothers, and their hatred then became jealousy, which Proverbs chapter 14 verse 30 says that jealousy rots the bones. In other words, jealousy destroys us from the inside out. And those sins left unchecked led to Joseph almost being murdered and sold into slavery and left Jacob in deep grief and and then probably left the brothers with decades of nagging guilt hanging over their heads. Friends, the sins of favoritism and hatred and jealousy might seem like harmless sins. We might not put those in the category of the really big sins, but they are really big. Because all sin leads to destruction in our lives. And I just wonder if today, maybe any of those sins are present in your life. Be warned of favoritism. Your favoritism could be destroying relationships and provoking others to sin. and could even be putting the one who is your favorite in a dangerous position. One of the many ironies we see in this section of Genesis is that Jacob is repeating the same sin of his parents. Do you remember that? Isaac, his father, loved Jacob's twin brother Esau more than he loved Jacob. And Isaac's mother, Rebekah, loved Jacob more than she loved Esau. And where did that lead? What did that lead to? It left to Jacob almost being murdered by his brother Esau. 
Now Jacob's doing the same thing, showing favoritism, and it's resulting in the same thing. The near death of his son. What he thinks is the death of his son. But we also not only want to be warned of favoritism, but this hatred and jealousy. Your hatred and jealousy could end up boiling over into a hurtful word or a hurtful action that could destroy a relationship for years and years to come. But even, catch this, even if the sin of hatred and jealousy stays buried in your heart and never shows itself... What did that verse in Proverbs say? It rots your bones. That it, will, it will destroy you. Even if somehow you manage to keep it all in and it never affects anybody else, which is almost impossible, but even if it did, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy you from the inside out. Brothers and sisters, if these sins are present in your life, don't let them go unchecked. Confess them to the Lord. Confess them to others. And then put to death these works of the flesh. Flee, the Bible says, from sins. They only lead to destruction in our lives and the lives of those around us. And so we learn from the bad examples we see in this passage. But church family, we also want to zoom out and look at this from a little bit higher elevation. Now as we examine their sin and their destruction, the destruction that it causes, it's kind of like we're wading through the pieces of the puzzle, right? We're just kind of right in the middle of it. We're pushing them aside. There's just lots of pieces all over and it's a mess. And when you're wading through the pieces of your life that seems to be falling apart, remember that it's easy to say, man, this could have been a really beautiful picture, but all it is is a mess. But if we'll step back and we'll see the providential hand of God, even looking at the big picture of the Bible, kind of like you would look at the picture on the front of the box of that puzzle, and we see it from that perspective, then we can say this mess of pieces is on its way to becoming a beautiful picture. And that's exactly what we see when we step back from this mess in Genesis chapter 37. The second truth that I want to share with you today, church, is this. In the confusion that's caused by sin, remember that God is in control. In the confusion caused by sin, remember that God is in control. This chapter and the entire story of Joseph's life provides for us, I believe, one of the most incredible pictures in the Bible of God's good and sovereign control over humanity. In the midst of the mess, God is carefully and faithfully and lovingly and powerfully working with those pieces, bringing about His will, which is the fulfillment of His very good and gracious promises. You see, in the ups and downs and twists and turns, God's steady hand of providence is accomplishing His plan. So let's look back through this passage again and notice God's steady hand of providence. We've gone through and seen all the mess of sin, but where is God here? Where is His hand of providence? Now to do that, we're also going to have to look ahead in the story a little bit. Okay. Now let me, let me pause for a minute. It's maybe I'm tossing out the word providence and you say, well, what do you mean by God's providence? When we talk about God's providence, church, we're referring to his constant interaction in the world he created to bring about his will. And remember that his will is very good. It's the best thing for this world. So when we talk about his providence, it's God's wonderful and gracious interaction in our world where he is always at work providing everything that's necessary so that his will is accomplished. 
Now, we don't really see God in this passage. It doesn't seem like we do. He's not mentioned here in this passage, but he is at work. Let's start with the dreams. Where did those dreams come from? Well, they came from God. You say, how do we know that? How do we know Joseph just didn't eat something bad before he went to sleep those two nights and had some crazy dreams? How do we know they came from God? Well, because if we look ahead later in the story, we see that those dreams actually come to fruition. We see his family bowing down before him, and the text specifically tells us when we get to those chapters that God's the one who did it. It says that God was the one that was doing all of that. So God's the one who gave him these dreams. So we see God at work right from the start in giving him these dreams. But what about all the rest of this messy details that we have? Again, if we look ahead in the story, we learn that something is coming. A famine is coming. A terrible famine. Not just in one little location, but it's going to affect, it's going to affect many, 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 many people. And here's what's happening. God was going to rescue his people, the family of Jacob, by getting Joseph to Egypt where he would carry out a plan to provide food during those years of famine. And not only that, but Egypt, remember those questions that we asked that we said we're going to see fulfilled? Egypt is going to be the place where Jacob's family would live for 400 years before coming back to the promised land. And it's where this family would grow into a nation which God had promised would happen. In other words, in God's plan... Joseph needed to get to Egypt. In God's plan, Joseph needed to get to Egypt. Now look back at these details with this end picture in view. Jacob just so happens to feel the need to send Joseph to check on his brothers. It's God's providence. On the way, Joseph couldn't find his brothers and is just wandering around in a field. And just so happens, a man sees him wandering around and says, what are you doing? What are you looking for? God's providence. Joseph tells him, hey, I'm looking for my brothers. And this man just so happens to have overheard the brothers say, hey, by the way, we're headed to Dothan. It's God's providence. Then the brothers just so happen to notice Joseph from afar, probably because of the fancy coat he's wearing, which gives them time to plot their evil plan before he gets there. And of course, their evil plan is to kill him, but Reuben just so happens to intervene in their plan to spare his life and tell him, just throw him in this pit. But then as the brothers sit down to eat, there just so happens to be a caravan of Ishmaelites heading to where? Egypt, which is where, from God's perspective, uh, Joseph needs to get to. And and Judah just so happens to say, you know what, what profit is this going to be? Let's sell him to the the people, to this this caravan. And and it just so happens that Reuben's not there, because Reuben would have protested and said, no, 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 we can't sell him into slavery. But Reuben, he left for a few minutes. And so while he's gone, they sell him. And that caravan just happens to be going down to Egypt, right? Just so happens, often in life, is God's providence, church family. Joseph getting to Egypt would eventually lead to salvation from a massive famine, and it was the next step in God fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so when we look at this passage from that perspective, we see that all of those just so happens were actually God's steady hand of providence at work accomplishing his good plan. Even consider this from Jacob's perspective for a moment. After Joseph tells his dreams, verse 10 says his father rebuked him. His father said, whoa, 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 that's not. I don't know. Jacob kind of struggled with the fact that he might have to one day bow down to his son. But I want you to notice verse 11. There's a statement there that's very interesting. It says, but his father kept the saying in mind. Jacob 
Joseph's father had experienced God speaking to him in dreams. We've studied about that. And God fulfilling his promise to him. Jacob had lived long enough to not just throw this dream out as completely ridiculous. It may have shocked him in the moment. It may have seemed far-fetched, but Jacob didn't completely reject it. He kept it in mind. And I can only imagine that perhaps it sparked a little hope in him. Because if he was one day to be ruled by a son, which son would he have picked? Joseph, right? He would have picked Joseph. Maybe he's thinking, perhaps it's one day, one day my favorite son is going to rule over his brothers. And so maybe Joseph kind of started daydreaming a little, bit, a little bit about this dream that Joseph had. Maybe that is going to happen. But then we get to the end of the chapter, we find Jacob tearing his garments, putting on sackcloth, mourning for many days, refusing to be comforted, and saying that he would mourn until his death. From his perspective, those dreams are gone. His hope of his son one day ruling, his favorite son one day ruling, are over. And from Joseph's perspective, not only are his brothers not bowing down to him at this point in the story, he's headed off in slavery to another country thinking he'll never see his brothers again. The dream seems shattered into pieces. In fact, that was actually what Joseph's brother's plan was. You see that in verse 20. We will see what will become of his dreams. But we know God's hand was at work the whole time, moving the pieces, arranging the pieces to accomplish his plan. And church family, I just want you to be encouraged today. I really want you to be encouraged today. When your life seems to be falling apart, when it seems like dreams are shattered, remember God is at work. Even sinful choices, and we'll talk about this in coming chapters, even sinful choices cannot thwart God's plan. Maybe you are in the midst of the confusion caused by your own sin. Maybe you're in the midst of confusion caused by the sin of somebody else in your life. Maybe you're in the midst of the confusion that's caused by Adam's sin and just results in us living in a broken and fallen world. But whatever confusion your life is in because of sin, realize this, that in the midst of the confusion caused by sin, God is in control. This doesn't mean that things are going to get better quickly. It doesn't mean that things are going to work out the way that we think they ought to work out. Trusting God's hand of providence means trusting God's timing and trusting that the end picture is better than anything that you could have dreamed up on your own. For Jacob and Joseph, it would be 20 years, catch that, 20 years before the picture started making sense. 20 years before they understood how God's hand was at work this entire time. And so church, be patient and trust that God is at work. But it gets even better. It gets even better. You see the picture we see being formed by God's steady hand of providence in Genesis chapter 37 and the chapters of Genesis that follow is actually only a part of the final picture. Remember, we want to zoom out from this passage and see it in light of the book of Genesis and we want to zoom out from this passage and see it in light of the entire Bible. Remember, the promise isn't merely to make Israel into a great nation, which is going to happen in Egypt. The promise is for a deliverer who's going to come and who's going to rescue us from the serpent in the garden. And friends, the entire final section of Genesis points us to that coming deliverer in some really incredible ways. And it starts right here in Genesis chapter 37. And so this final truth that I want to share with you is this. Church family, believe in Jesus whose rejection became our salvation. Believe in Jesus whose rejection became our salvation. As we see Joseph in this story, rejected by his brother, stripped of his robe, left for dead, and then sold into slavery, my mind races ahead to the final picture that God is writing here in this story, the final picture where God is 
taking these shattered pieces of life and then all of a sudden making sense to them. This is a small picture of nothing less and short than the, uh, the, the coming promise deliverer whose name is Jesus. You see, Jesus is going to come. It's going to be many, many, many years from chapter 37 in Genesis. But Jesus was going to come. And you know what's going to happen when he came? He was going to be rejected by his own brothers. Isaiah chapter 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men. The Gospel of John says that when he came to his own, his own people, his own brothers, his own family, that they did not receive him. His own people, John says, did not receive him. And then being rejected, Jesus was stripped of his clothes and handed over to another nation, right? Handed over to the Gentiles, handed over to the Romans. Though instead of carrying him into slavery, those Gentiles would execute him on a Roman cross. And you say, I thought this was a good picture. I thought God was doing something good. I thought his plan was good. Well, church, it was. Because God was working through Joseph's rejection to bring salvation from a coming famine for Jacob's family, in the same way God was working through the rejection of His Son, Jesus, to bring salvation from His coming wrath. After Jesus was rejected and stripped and handed over to the Gentiles, what did they do? They nailed Him to a cross. And it was through His death on the cross that Jesus satisfied God's wrath towards our sin, saved us from the punishment that we deserve as He took our place so that everyone who believes in Jesus for salvation is rescued forever and ever and ever. Thank goodness Jesus was a far better rescuer than Reuben. Reuben tried and failed, but Jesus died and he succeeded. And his success is not seen merely in his payment for sin there on the cross, but also in his resurrection from the grave and in the promise of what will come one day. Revelation, we're going to go all the way to the end of the Bible now. Revelation chapter 19 gives us another picture of Jesus. And here he's not hanging on a cross, dying, because that has already happened in Revelation 19. Here he is riding a white horse of victory, and like Joseph, his robe is dipped in blood. But Jesus' blood is not the blood of a goat. It's not the blood of an animal. Actually, in Revelation 19, it's the blood of his enemies. It's the blood that says Jesus is the victor. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords Jesus is the deliverer Jesus is the conqueror Jesus may have been rejected by his brothers but the dreams that seemed shattered on the cross were a part of God's plan the whole time you see his rejection was a piece in the puzzle that God's hand of providence was carefully arranging to form and paint for us and give for us the most beautiful picture of all time, that picture of salvation through the rejected one before whom, get this, all the nations would one day bow. Remember Joseph's dream? Christ robed dipped in blood, the nations bowing before him. 
And so the call of this passage, church, is a call to believe in Jesus, whose rejection became our salvation. Have you believed in Him? If not, please do so. Do so today. Ask God to save you as you trust completely in what Jesus did on the cross to rescue you from your sin. And if you have believed in Jesus, are you holding fast to your belief in Christ? It is through faith in Jesus that God can take the pieces of our lives and put them together to make a a picture, to make life, to make salvation from sin and victory over the enemy. It's through Jesus, that, that as our faith is in Jesus, that we can daily fight against temptations like favoritism and jealousy and hatred in our lives. It's through faith in Jesus that we are able to trust that God is in control even when our lives seem to be thrown into confusion because of sin. It's through Jesus that God's steady hand of providence is accomplishing His plan. Recently, I was working on a puzzle with a couple of my children and my mom. She had actually given one of my daughters a puzzle. And, um, and so we were sat down and we were trying to put that thing together. It was about 400 pieces. And so it was taking a, a, a little bit of time to, to, to put together. We were about halfway finished when I noticed that one of my daughters was getting a little restless. She was losing concentration. I think I even heard a few sighs. You know how that happens. Oh, Oh, kind of staring at the pieces. Oh, not really helping as much as she was at the beginning. And, and we just kept working. We kept working. And then she just out of the blue announced, I'm going outside to play. Call me when it's done. She was actually the one who had been given the puzzle. I'm going outside to play. Call me when it's done. And with that, she got up. She walked right out the door. And she never looked back. Friend, maybe you feel that way sometimes with the pieces of your life. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you're ready just to walk away. Maybe you've lost sight of the big picture and all you can see are just a bunch of pieces laying there all mixed up and it just looks like a big mess with no hope. Friend, I want you to look at the big picture. Look at God's steady hand of providence. Look to the cross and the empty tomb and Jesus standing in victory over his enemies. Friend, look at that big picture. For now, we walk by faith and not by sight. But folks, sight is coming one day when the picture of our lives and the picture of this world is finished when the pieces are all put together and those who have believed in Jesus will live with him forever and so believe in Jesus and then don't walk away from Jesus don't give up God is at work he always has been he always will be would you pray with me father thank you so much for this passage from your word today lord thank you that you speak truth into our hearts and lives Lord, thank you for the way that you are always at work. And Lord, if there's somebody here today who maybe has never trusted in Jesus Christ, they've never seen that big picture of of what you can do, what you are doing with this world and the sin that's in this world, how it's it's moving in a particular direction, and that direction is Jesus on the throne forever, surrounded by everyone who has repented of their sins and trusted in him enjoying eternal life forever. Father, if there's someone who needs to trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that they would call on you today. And God, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, Lord, help us not to give up. God, when we, when we see the pieces of our lives, Lord, help us to know that your steady hand of providence is, is over those pieces and you are doing a good work. And we may not be able to see it at this moment and what's going on in our lives, Lord, but we walk by faith trusting that you have a plan. It is a good plan. And you are a powerful God. 
You are a loving God. And you will stay at work as we keep trusting in you. Bringing about in our lives your very good and perfect will and plan. Father, help us to live out these words from your word today. And tomorrow, every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.